Now, last time as we closed on this, we talked about some things that are foundational, fundamental as well, if you're going to be a part of a church. So there are biblical reasons why we hold the line where we hold it. There's also a historic position as well. And so hopefully these are, I guess, some questions that a lot of people in the pew might have, and uh, they can get answered, I I believe, by God's grace. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the gospel of Matthew in the 16th chapter, which has been a springboard for us as we've studied the New Testament church in a series called Church Done Right. Church Done Right. I think this is about the fifth or the sixth installment in, in this uh, series. And this is the text that we've been, we've been going to at the beginning of each message. And so we're getting familiar with it. And we know that is, it's where Christ asked the disciples whom they think he is, and and they say, you're the Christ, the Messiah, especially Peter speaks up. And Jesus said, well, blessed are you, Peter, for saying that, but you didn't come up with that on your own. God the Father revealed it to you. And then he goes on and he, he makes a statement here. There's much confusion about this statement. There are some who think that he's installing Peter as the head of the church, the first leader of the church, but he's not doing that. He's actually making a contrast or comparison. And he's telling Peter, in the Greek word is, is petros, you're a pebble, a, a small stone. But he says upon himself, this rock, he refers to himself as, the Greek word is petra. Petra means a huge boulder. And Jesus Christ is the rock. In fact, Peter even says so in his epistle, and Christ is called the rock in many other places as well. So he is the cornerstone that the church was founded upon, and the apostles and prophets made up the foundation on top of that. We've been studying that in another epistle lately, and then there were others who followed as well. So with that as a backdrop, we pick it up in Matthew 16, beginning in verse number 15. He, Jesus, saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, Petros, small pebble. And upon this rock, Petra, he says, I, notice, will build my church. He didn't say, Peter, I'll build your church. Or he didn't say, Peter, build my church. He said, no, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then I believe he looked at the group. He said, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this was a promise, a yea, an admonition that he gave to the local church at that time, one I still cling to to this day, that the local church is sanctioned by heaven. And so we're talking about church done right. And we'll talk more about it as we... Uh, Begin, but let's pray first. Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to help us now to listen carefully. This is meat. Father, this requires thought. 
And Lord, it to some might uh, not seem as vibrant as perhaps uh, another type of message with an admonition. But yet, if we're going to love what you love and appreciate what you died for, then we need to understand the institution that you started, the local church. Help us to now, and we'll thank you for it. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time as we, as we closed on this, we talked about some things that are foundational, fundamental as well, if you're going to be a part of a church. The first is to be regenerated. And that sounds so obvious, you've got to be born again first, but uh, it's not really that way. In most churches, they kind of bypass that and you just, you join. But since baptism makes you a, a member of a church right away, then you should not get baptized until you have been saved, a regenerated membership. We find in Acts 2 that there were a number of people saved on the day of Pentecost, and the, the Bible says, they that gladly received his word were baptized. So they had to get saved first, then they got baptized, and the Bible says they were added unto them, the existing church, these other people. So baptism makes you a member of a church automatically, right away, and, and, and so you have to be saved before you get baptized. Now, you say, well, that brings up the question, should we baptize people right away after they get saved? And we, we covered that as well. Now, there are obviously biblical examples of people getting baptized right after they got saved, but you need to understand the radical conditions of that day and age. I mean, they paid for it with their lives in some cases. They lost their jobs or whatever it might be. So consider the times and consider the circumstances. There was no facade. There was nothing pretentious. There was uh, no playing games. If they got baptized, they better mean business. And so they got baptized meaning business. Now, today, we have a problem in many churches across America with people making professions of faith, getting baptized right away and being at the bar getting drunk the next night or uh, continuing to live on in fornication the next week. And so what do you do then? You have a problem. If they won't repent of that, then you have to now remove them from the church membership. It's called church discipline. It's, it's taught in the Bible here, church discipline. However, there are many churches who don't practice church discipline. There are many churches that are into the big church syndrome. And it's just kind of like, bring them in, this revolving door, just bring them in and then send them out again, or they go out. And there's nothing that is done to deal with their membership being dissolved at that time. Well, so should we baptize them right away? No, I think there's a sane balance considering the, the days and, and the time that we live in and having understanding of those times and being men of knowledge. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.18 to a crowd, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. In other words, evidence of salvation. Let's, let's be sure you mean business here. Jesus said in John 10.27, my sheep, those truly saved, hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Somebody who has been truly saved will follow the Lord. Now, we're not saying they have to follow the Lord perfectly. And we can go to seed on that, crossing every T, dotting every I, making sure they're doing everything perfect. And that's not even a sane balance. Good grief, we're not even doing everything perfect. But I am talking about having a, a good public testimony of not still continuing on in prostitution or, or selling drugs or something else before they take that step of getting baptized. I believe in a time to grow, and I believe in even after baptism, there are those, the Bible calls them, weak in the faith. And so we need to understand all that. But I think 
the basic church covenant ought to be followed. And, you know, we don't put a lot of stuff in the basic church covenant, but we lay out a, a, a real good balance, and, and, say, and we say we're covenanting together as members of Fargo Baptist Church to do this, this, and this, and this. And I think there's a very basic order to be followed. There are actually several sermons here at Fargo Baptist that, that we give to those who want to get baptized. We give them these sermons on CD. We have them listen to those. And uh, we, we want to, them to be at least at some level before they, they take that step because it's a very important step. So number one, as we talk about these foundational things, got to be saved first. Secondly, uh, baptism by immersion makes you now a member of a particular local church. Brings us to the second thought. How about membership in a church by letter? Now, we do this thing around here quite often. We transfer letters. We send out letters of, of request. We receive letters back of recommendation. And we, we vote here down by the front. And you say, why do we do that? Is there a biblical reason for that? Well, there is a biblical reason for that. Now, it, it also, and I've been asked this question, if somebody moves to town here and wants to join, they've been scripturally baptized already, do they have to get baptized again? No. Um, that's where we transfer a letter of recommendation. Sometimes relocation is necessary. Sometimes it's of the Lord. More than, than not, it's uh, sadly something people do outside of God's will. I think moving around is, is more rare than we realize. When we transfer from one church to another, it should never be a step down. Never. Never. It should never be a compromise. We should never be in a lesser church. It should always be a better church. It should always be a church where we can more effectively serve. I think those are some telltale signs. I don't believe the Lord would lead us down a step in the Christian life. Now, how do we do this letter of transfer thing? Well, turn to Acts chapter 18, if you would, and let's talk about what we call a letter of recommendation. A letter of recommendation. Here in Acts chapter 18, we have Apollos um, relocating, if you will, or needing to get in to a church. And in Acts chapter 18 and in verse number 27, it says, And when he was disposed to pass to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. Notice the brethren wrote those words. The brethren wrote, and then they exhorted to the disciples in this new locale to receive Apollos. Look in Second Corinthians chapter 3, if you would. Apparently, this was a practice in biblical times to, uh, to relocate, to become a member someplace else. You didn't get baptized all over again. Um, you just had a letter of recommendation from the church where you were coming to the new church where you were going to be a member and apparently that was a practice. Here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you have the church at Corinth, and they had been belittling Paul. This epistle, as was 1 Corinthians, was a, a letter of straightening out some stuff. And so Paul is straightening out them and, and rebuking them in a sense. And uh, we find him say this in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 1. He says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves or to recommend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, notice this, the word epistle means letter. Epistles are letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from 
you. They had kind of put themselves above Paul, and Paul kind of puts things back in perspective and says, do we need a commendation or a letter of recommendation from you? So apparently this practice was taking place of, of uh, if somebody transferred, they, they received a letter of recommendation. Now, this practice really ought to be carefully maintained. Again, sadly, in many churches, it's, it's kind of ignored, and there are, there are many biblical practices that are meaningful that sadly are being ignored. I, I mean, it, they're biblical, but churches are just kind of taking it lightly. We should never take it lightly. If the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that means the church is pretty important. So here at Fargo Baptist, we take this stuff seriously. We do not take it lightly. So when, when somebody moves, we send a letter of recommendation uh, with them after it's requested, or, or when someone comes here, we, we, we request a letter of recommendation. And by the way, this is always done at the church level. You know, we don't just send a, a letter in, in uh, say, Lee's hand and, and say, you go ahead and transfer to this place and, and uh, bon voyage. No, when he gets there, it's done at the church level. That church requests a letter from us, and then we send a letter to them because it needs to be done at the church level. You don't just show up and, and uh, say, I want to join here. There's, there's church involvement. Now, that brings us to the next question of, of what about membership by restoration? In other words, if you've been a member before and put out because of disciplinary action, and we talked about that just a moment ago, how do you rejoin? Uh, here's something else that's not dealt with. If there has been flagrant sin, uh, public sin, by the way, I, I believe in private sin being dealt with privately, public sin needing to be dealt with publicly. It's just a, a good rule of thumb. So there's flagrant, violent, uh, and immorality and, and public sin. Uh, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, there was, there was incest going on in the church at Corinth. There was a guy uh, who was, was doing something inappropriate with his own stepmother. And the people were kind of smirking at it and sweeping it under the carpet and treating it like it was no big deal. Look, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just back a few chapters. Well, Paul didn't think it was a joke. Paul said, take this thing seriously and discipline that man out of the church. So apparently they did. That all took place in 1 Corinthians. So by the time Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians, that man had been put out. He had repented. And by the way, the, the reason for church discipline is, is not punitive. It's not to punish the person. It's to reconcile that person. It is to restore that person. And in this case, it worked. They put that guy out. Um, he was sorry for his sin. He repented. And now notice what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 6. He says, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrary-wise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech or beg you that you would confirm your love toward him. What he's saying here is restore this guy. Before he gets so discouraged, he just gives up and, and walks away. So there is membership, quote, again, by restoration, by bringing them back into the fold. Now, there's a fourth way of membership, and it's called to join by what we call statement of faith. Now, I can't give you a lot of Bible on this. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I do believe that this needs to be used in rare situations. For example, if, if somebody has their membership in a church somewhere, and it disbands, 
And, and we have a situation like that going on in the Twin Cities where there's a, an opportunity to, to buy a building down there uh, with the work down there at Metropolitan Baptist, the, and the church is disbanding. It happens. So you have a membership in a church someplace, and it disbands, and, and you move somewhere else, and, and they say, well, we need a, rec- a letter of recommendation from your former church. What church? <laughs> it's disbanded. See what I'm saying? So what do you do in cases like that? Well, what we have done in the past is... Um, is we have them joined by statement of faith. In other words, you, you have to kind of take their word that, okay, I, I, I've, been, I've been born again, I was scripturally baptized in such and such a church. And, and it is a little risky because people can fudge on the facts. And so I, I believe there are rare occasions where it's, it's necessary. Maybe somebody's been out of church for a while and that, that membership where they were at has lapsed. So how do they join now over here when they're not even really a member over here anymore? So again, I'm, I'm kind of skittish on doing this. Uh, it's rare when we do it. Our church constitution says this. As soon as you are removed from this church, you, you need to reunite with another New Testament church. Now again, uh, joining a church, another church, ought to be done at the church level. It's to be done publicly, by the way. Um, there, are, there are cities across this country that are just full of... of um, uh, I guess, uh, unaffiliated Baptist churches like ours, if you want to call them that. There, there are places like Springfield, Missouri. There are dozens of churches like this. And it's not a town any bigger than this. There are places like Fort Worth, Texas. There are hundreds of churches like this in the, the, the greater Dallas metroplex. And, and what they have go on down there quite often is Monday morning... I mean, there's just a bunch of people church hopping over to another church. They got a little bent out of shape over here. They didn't like something the preacher said over there. And so they just, you know, go join some other church, some other place. And, and it's really a joke, and, and especially in the Bible Belt, the Atlanta and places like that, where people are doing all this church hopping on Monday morning. Spiritual gypsies, I call them, that are just kind of continually moving around until they get offended again. And there's never any transfer of membership. None of that goes on. So around here, we deal with it at a church level. And we take it seriously. There are a few pertinent questions from either myself or a staff person uh, toward that person who wants to join. Have you been uh, truly saved? Uh, where was your, your, your membership before? Where did you get baptized? Quite often their baptism's not at the same place where they remember last. And these are just things, you know, why are you moving here? Let me just say this. Some people want church membership for the wrong reason. And you go, how could that be? Well, business contacts. We, we've had people here before, and, and uh, not quite often, but who were, who were coming basically to make some contacts, saw, saw an opportunity to engage some others in their business or sell them something. There are some who want to be a part of a church just to have a nice wedding. And they'll look at a place like this and go, ooh, ah, okay, this will do. And, and so it's important that we ask some pertinent questions. What's the motive here? There are even some who try to infiltrate with their false doctrine. And uh, we looked at that last week where in Acts, I think it's 20, Paul warned those, those preachers around Ephesus. He said there, there are going to be some that come from without, some from within, who want a platform. They have an agenda. And uh, they have this false doctrine they want to spread there. And so when somebody comes and, and uh, they want to join, I'll just say, you know what, uh, let me encourage you to visit a while. You know, check us out. Be sure this is what you want, that kind of thing. And... and um, the previous church is always contacted, though, eventually. There's, after that, uh, a brief interview, and then you know the rest from there because we do it here. There's a public vote. 
where I say, you know, so-and-so has, has uh, come here and they want to join. And so we take that vote and then we welcome them and then the letters are exchanged. You say, well, that's a lot of work. It might be, but, but church membership is a privilege. It's also responsibility. It's a serious matter. I understand there are no perfect people. We know that. But there's every effort made to do church right. That's what the series is all about. We're trying to do church right. Now, that brings us to the next subject. Removal from church membership. Removal from church membership. Sadly, again, it's not practiced in most, or many at least, churches. I don't know if it's most, but, but I know a bunch of them that uh, they, they don't discipline people out who are not living right. And again, we're not, uh, we're not on a witch hunt. We're not looking for uh, sin under every rock kind of a thing. But when it's gotten flagrant and when it's gotten public, something needs to be done. Plus, we need to, I guess, keep sin out of the camp, that the Spirit might be saved, and so on and so forth. Now, let me just say, if somebody um, gets baptized and they're a member of a particular church, that's for life. It's not a, uh, well, it's a three-year probation or a ten-year probation. No, it, it is a lifelong thing. So if they are removed from membership of a church, how is that, how does that happen? Well, obviously, the first way is by death. So you've got to die to get out of here, all right? Some of you, no, just kidding. But you're transferred into glory or you're, you're transferred to Christ. When your membership is transferred in that way, it means you, you died. Now, secondly, there's a transfer of, of letters. We've talked about that already. But, but let me just uh, bring up this question. What if somebody comes to a church like this and there have been problems at the last church they were in? How is that dealt with? Look, if you wouldn't, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Just turn a few pages back. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let me tell you how we handle it here. We communicate. We communicate. Um, We don't just, you know, okay, come on in here. Okay, there was problems at the last place. Let's just sweep that under the carpet. There are some preachers who do that. And I think some, some churches get a little bit too desperate for growth. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do anything unethical. I, I, am, I am a strong proponent of pastoral ethics. I do not recruit members from other churches. I, I do not even hint. I do not take them out to eat. I do not call them and say, I'm praying for you, brother. I don't do anything that would symbolize some red carpet being out so that they would say, well, hey, I'd have it better over there. No, I don't, I don't flatter anyone. I don't whine and dine them. I think that's unethical. It is unethical. No question about that. And I don't apologize for that. So anyway, if somebody has had problems at the previous church they are in, and they, they come here and say, well, we'd like to move here, how do we handle that? Well, I communicate with the previous pastor. Um, if an apology is in order, they need to apologize. They need to make things right. You know why? Well, look in, in 1 Corinthians 14. Here's just a principle. Verse 40 says, Let all things be done decently, and in order. I believe that fences ought to be mended with the previous church before they are able to transfer to another church. Now, if they are displeased with the former church or dissatisfied with it, I encourage reconciliation. I always do. Because I am not out to benefit from somebody else's loss, and so I will encourage that reconciliation. Sometimes just personality clashes. I understand that. Feelings get hurt or pressure, whatever it might be. But, but if, 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 if all else cannot be worked out with the past church, then I, uh, 
I'll, I'll, I'll communicate with that pastor, try and make sure everything is, is right because people need a place to go to church. I, I'm a believer in that. They need somewhere to raise their children. There are future generations that are needing the, the message. So I, I don't just, I don't put them out. And normally, there are workable goals. They really, there really are. But the goal is, is restoration. We try to restore as much as possible. And uh, you say, well, pastor, that brings up the next question. What if somebody just wants off the church roll? And uh, you get folks who say, well, just take me off church roll. Well, what they're saying is dismiss me. There, there's no such thing as just being taken off a church roll. Well, there's different ways, I think, to handle dismissals at certain levels. We do that here. If it's really public and, and flagrant, uh, we'll have a church-wide meeting or the men's meeting. If, it, if it's something else, it, it might just involve the, uh, what we might call the, uh, the trustees or the, the, the men who meet in the leadership meeting every month. Uh, if it's lesser than that, it might involve the staff and deacons. If it's lesser than that, it might just involve the, the deacons. And so we try and handle it at the appropriate level. You say, Pastor, what if there is somebody who is just disgruntled with Fargo Baptist Church? What do you do? Well, I encourage them to find another church. Um, we don't try and hang on to disgruntled people. Actually, it'll, it'll cause a sour spirit within the church. I love them unconditionally, but I really do. And I have in the past said, you know what? Uh, I love you, but, but maybe it would be best if you just kind of found another place to, to worship at. I think it's important to keep the spirit sweet here. And so we will do that if we have to. Now, all of this is important in a church done right, which, which brings up the next question. As people transfer memberships, do we accept everybody's baptism? Is everybody's baptism okay? Um, a number of years ago, there was a church probably a mile or two from here on a major artery in town here, and I was driving by and I saw a sign that said, This Sunday, come and get baptized. No one refused. Everyone welcome." And I thought to myself, really? <laughs> First of all, it's not going to be believer's baptism. Secondly, it's not going to be by immersion. And, and thirdly, it's going to be a very unscriptural church. So they get baptized over there, and three years later they hear about us. They're listening to the radio. They like what they're hearing. And they come over and they say, we want to join this church. What's wrong with this picture? Huh. Uh, quite a bit <laughs> wrong with this picture to tell you the truth here. The devil has been busy, folks. Let me just put it that way. And, and this stuff goes on all the time. That's why it kind of just flows out of me. We know what's wrong with this picture. First of all, the person who wants to join has never probably ever been converted. Secondly, they were not baptized by the proper mode or method. It, it was sprinkling. It was pouring. It was not immersion. And, and thirdly, was it the proper administrator? Did they have proper authority? There is a, 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 a dear old preacher that I've known for decades. And uh, years ago, he went to a Bible college down in South Carolina. And uh, it, it was not taught anything about the local church. Had to learn that from somebody else. And so he didn't know any better. And, and one day, uh, him and his buddy, actually, uh, well, it was his friend more than him, but his friend went and, and uh, led this guy to the Lord, and, and uh, I think he was kind of a hobo or a transient kind of a guy who was passing through. And the guy led him to the Lord, and uh, when, when this preacher saw him walking back, he was carrying his shoes, and, and uh, he was wet up to his waist. And the preacher said, well, what, what happened? He said, well, I just led this guy to the Lord, and I took him down to the city fountain, and I, I baptized him there. And uh, the preacher I know said, oh, well, that's neat. 
Well, he knows better now. He knows that wasn't so neat. What's wrong with this picture? Well, the guy got saved, okay, apparently, and so he had a scriptural candidate. He did it by immersion, so he got the scriptural method. But where is the scriptural authority? Authority is very, very, very important. You know, I could uh, see somebody whiz by in 23rd Avenue speeding, by the way, it's 25 miles an hour. <laughs> but somebody's going 35 or 40, and I could see him whiz by, and I'd get my car, and I could catch up to him, and I could pull him over, and I could have a tablet, and I could walk up to his car with my pen and say, you were speeding, and I'm going to give you a ticket. Well, he was speeding. He's guilty. I did it just like they do it in the police shows, so I, I had the right kind of method of, of doing all this stuff, right? But what's lacking? Authority. I don't have the authority to do that. You know, it's funny how we can recognize authority with the police force and we can recognize authority with the military and we can uh, recognize a CEO of a company as an authority, but somehow we just sweep authority under the carpet when it comes to a New Testament church. We shouldn't do that. You know, when um, they came to Jesus after he'd cleansed the temple, they, they were ticked off and they said, by what authority do you do this? Remember that? And he said, well, I have a question for you. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. He said, the baptism of John, was it of God or was it of men? Now, what was he saying? The baptism of John, is this just something he got a whim to do? He got a wild hair and he just decided to go out there and do his own thing and, and baptize? Or was this of God? Was this sanctioned of heaven? And they said, hmm... If we say of men, they'll stone us because everybody knows John's the real deal. But if we say of heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him then? So they backed out. They said, we will not tell thee. And Jesus said, well, I won't answer your question either then. But what was the point he was making? It was of the importance of authority. And of all the, the illustrations our Lord could have picked to demonstrate authority, he used baptism, didn't he? The Bible says there was a man sent from God. So we know where he got his authority, whose name was John. That authority was so important that Jesus Christ himself walked 60 to 70 miles to get that baptism. When Judas hung himself and they needed a replacement, what did they go back to? They said, the guy has to have been baptized by John. If he's going to be an apostle, he's got to have John's baptism. What was John's name? You say, well, John the baptizer. Eh, wrong. It's a personal pronoun. John the Baptist. It's a title. And it wasn't John the Lutheran. And it wasn't John the Catholic. And it wasn't John the Methodist. And it wasn't John the Presbyterian. I honestly believe that they were using that, that title back in those days. Jesus Christ started his church from disciples that John had actually won and baptized. And so it was Baptist baptism. Now, if you're baptized by a Mormon, what's that make you? Well, Mormon. Baptized by Lutheran? Well, Lutheran. Catholic? Well, Catholic. Who baptized Jesus? Who baptized the members of that first church? So there is something to a name. And there is something to authority. Now, if somebody comes along and they say, we want to join this church, we say, well, okay, have you been saved quite often? Yep, I've been born again. How were you baptized? I was baptized by immersion. Well, that's good. But it's normally the third one that we have to stop and go, wait a minute here. 
If you've never heard a term, um, the term alien immersion, I want to teach it to you. You say, I picture some Martian with little beep, 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 you know, little antennas and, and you baptizing them. No, the, the word alien just means foreign. It means strange. So if it's alien immersion, it's foreign to biblical baptism. It's strange to, uh, to Bible baptism. Something ha- is out of order. Something uh, has been displaced. It's not orthodox. So when a New Testament church needs to rebaptize somebody, normally one of these three things are out of order. They haven't been saved, uh, or it wasn't by immersion, or it wasn't by somebody with scriptural authority. Plain and simple. Now, the Baptists, for the most part, down through the centuries, and they go back 2,000 years, were called Anabaptists. A-N-A was put in front of the word Baptist. A-N-A in the Latin means re. So they were called the re-baptizers. And, and it's, it's a title that goes way back. And their enemies called them that. Cardinal Hoseus, uh, who was a Catholic cardinal, headed up the Council of Trent in uh, 1541. That would be like um, Vatican I and, and Vatican II of the 1900s. It was a big, big council where they got together and they, they realigned some of their doctrine and their creed. Cardinal Hoseus was no little guy. He, he was a big shot. He said a lot of things about the Anabaptists, called them that. And he, he also mentioned that the Anabaptists go back 400 years prior to Augustine. Well, Augustine lived around 430 A.D. So 400 years before that puts you right at 30 A.D., and we know that's the magic number when Jesus Christ walked this earth. The Edinburgh Encyclopedia, which, by the way, is, is uh, Presbyterian, mentions the Anabaptists. He's, and it writes, and I quote, The Baptists are the same sect of Christians that were formerly called the Anabaptists. And they go back to the time of Tertullian. Well, Tertullian lived about 50 years after, uh, after John the Apostle. So now you're way back during the first, second century right in there. John Ridpath, who was a Methodist, lived around um, or, or mentioned the Baptist going back uh, to 100 AD. So what I am is, is a, a, a Baptist. I am a historic Anabaptist. I, we are not non-denominational. We are not interdenominational. Uh, we are Baptist. And uh, I could go more in depth, but I just want to say this. Historically, that name has stood for something. It it, it says what we believe. It it says uh, who we align with, who we separate from. the, The name itself says it all, what our standards are, what our convictions are. And historically speaking, it it was the Baptists who were put to death by the tens of millions at the hands of the Church of Rome during the Dark Ages. It it wasn't some ecumenical group. It wasn't some non-denominational group. It was the Baptists by the tens of millions. History proves that. It's a name the devil hates, no question about it. So what do we do if somebody wants to join a church and uh, they've got Catholic baptism, they have Lutheran baptism, they have... Uh, Mormon baptism, they, they have Jehovah's Witnesses baptism, or Church of Christ baptism, or Methodist baptism, or, or non-denominational baptism, or whatever it might be. Well, let me just say this. We, we don't accept their baptism, obviously. In fact, if a church is, is, has the name Baptist on it, and it's gone worldly, it has gotten unscriptural, you know, Jesus rebuked a church there, uh, a church at Asia Minor. It's, he, he said, you have a name that you live in. But you're dead. And there are a lot of churches, and you can find them by the thousands, especially in the Bible Belt. They have a name that they're living, that Baptist name, but they're dead. 
So we have to even check that out. It, it, was it a scriptural Baptist church that you were baptized in? You know, Christ in uh, that same discourse there in the early chapters of the Revelation mentioned those churches being pictured as candlesticks. Remember that? And, and he said, repent or I'll come and remove your candlestick. What's he saying? I'll remove your authority. You will cease to be a scripture New Testament church. And that is the, the big question. When does a church cease to be a scripture New Testament church? That is a good question. Where do you draw the line? Well, let me just say this. When it comes to accepting a baptism, there are countless scenarios. There are a bunch of scenarios. You know, some, some guy might say, I got saved and, and my baptism is by immersion and I got, I got immersed in the Catholic Church. Do you know that uh, years ago there was a, a Catholic church, I believe to the north and a little bit west of here, that baptized by immersion and, and afterwards said, what do those Baptists have on us? And uh, that happened. But the Lutherans, some of them baptized by immersions, the most, for the most part the Charismatics baptized by immersion. Um, church of Christ baptizes by immersion. Whose baptism do we accept? Uh, non-denominational, whatever. Where do we draw the line? That's the question. And how do we get selective? How do we, we, we say, well, you know, I've heard out your case, but, but uh, sorry, you don't cut the mustard. You know, taking a stand really is an oddity. It's a rare thing in this day and age of ecumenicism, isn't it? And, and uh, I'm telling you, churches that really still stick by the stuff are few and far between. After all that blood was shed over 2,000 years, by the Anabaptists, do we dare dip the banner. That is the question. Plus, what you do is you wind up with this mixed multitude of, of beliefs. So now you have people coming in and they believe in the universal invisible church. Well, that's not scriptural. Or they're five-point Calvinists. Or uh, they're ecumenical. Or they're open communion. See what I'm saying? You've got all these people in. You've, you've opened the door here. You've got tainted Bible versions all over the place. See, see where it can go? I mean, if we really follow this thing through... And uh, it's all going to lead to dissension. Now, Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And we know that we don't all agree on everything. But there ought to be a sane balance here if we're going to stay unified. So you've got all these, these churches out there, many of them baptized and even by immersion. And so we start getting a selective. And, and as a result, feelings get hurt. We, well, you took his, you didn't take mine, that kind of a thing. And, and what is, well, here's another question, what if the church you're transferring from, or let's just put it this way, what if the church you got baptized back yonder in has gone liberal? What we do is we look and see what kind of condition it was at the time they got baptized, because that's happening left and right all over the country. I have, I have been in churches when we were on deputation 26, 27 years ago, and they're gone as far as everything goes. They are, they are totally gone. The candlestick has been removed. So if Fargo Baptist Church accepted non-Baptist baptism, all these consequences would take place, but we would also, in addition to that, be agreeing. We'd be saying, we agree with that doctrine from the church where you got baptized. We, we're agreeing with the universal invisible church and the five-point Calvinism and the open communion and, and the tainted Bible versions. We'd be saying we're in agreement with that technically, when obviously we wouldn't be agree with, in agreement with that. So then why not accept all baptisms from all churches? Where do we draw the line? Well, we, we draw the line at Baptist baptism in a scriptural Baptist church. 
If we start picking and choosing otherwise, the result is going to be confusion. The result is going to be ecumenicism. It's going to be bitterness. It's going to be inconsistency. It's going to be uh, interdenominationalism. And, and basically, we're opening Pandora's box. And in the process, we're losing our identity here. See what I'm saying? And that would be sad. You know, Ephesians 4 speaks about the unity of the Spirit, the bond of perfectness. And it says there's a number of things there's only one of. It mentions one body, speaking of a a New Testament church. And one faith, it mentions the unity of faith, one faith. I believe that is that body of doctrine. So there are biblical reasons why we hold the line where we hold it. There's also a historic position as well. And so hopefully these are, I guess, some questions that a lot of people in the pew might have and uh, they can get answered, I I believe, by God's grace. We'll pick up with this next time. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.